The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Hope you're having a wonderful and blessed day. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Spent it with some family, some friends, had a lot of turkey. I hope everyone that's listening is, well, a good two, three pounds heavier than when we were than when we last spoke. Uh, I, we have a jam-packed show for you today. I want to discuss a lot of things with you because the world changed an awful lot in the last couple of weeks, and it's changing so rapidly and so quickly around us. So what do I want to talk to you about today? Today I want to talk to you at the start, I want to talk to you about foreign policy. I want to offer you a very snapshot of the world that we live in today um, and the narratives that you're seeing being created on both sides, and I want to address that. Also, someone or something celebrated their 70th um birthday this week and we want to salute them we'll get to that in the next segment Uh, i also want to talk to you about a story out of poland which has got christians really happy but i want to talk to you about it and address it and explain why this is not a good thing and also try and fundamentally break down how if you believe in freedom and you believe in government how we look at different sides of the arguments and to really identify the sides of the arguments that we look on and then because today is such a heavy show Um, At the last segment of the show, I've got three or four funny stories or lighter-hearted stories that you might want to hear. Let's just have a bit of fun. We're we're building up to Christmas. We're building up to a a season where we're on holidays. And, you know, I I don't want to bombard you with a lot of um, philosophy today or going forward for the next couple of weeks for Christmas. So I've got a couple of funny stories to share. But where to start? Well... If you know me or if you've engaged with me, one of the things I try and pride myself on is I spend a lot of time talking to you, either, you know, um, when you message me or when you when you publicly tweet me. Um, I engage with you. And sometimes when people ask me questions, I bring them onto the show because sometimes if someone's thinking a question, hey, why did you say this or what did you mean by this? There are chances are some of y'all are thinking the same question. So I use it to, you know, further enlighten and or further explain the way I see the world. And I got a question, which I answered um, privately in a Facebook message. But the person is obviously a fan of the blaze internally. He says, you know, I heard you talk about change being such big and the world is changing so quickly. And I hear Glenn talk about the same thing. Can you give me just why in detail what exactly is changing so rapidly? So I just want to give you a quick snapshot of the world. Because we're changing really, really quickly. And I don't think we're having principled debates around the change that's going to happen. So in the world in general, which will affect everyone, I'm going to make this about foreign policy in a minute, but just look at the world in general, how much change we're having. We're in the, we see a world today called cryptocurrency. 
And it's starting to, there's a big debate becoming in cryptocurrency and it's going to come in mainstream. You saw the first shot, um, if you follow this very closely, you saw the first shot, uh, an economic advisor, um, he serves on some council, he served under Bill Clinton, basically said, you know what, Bitcoin serves no value, it should be banned. You're going to see, as Bitcoin keeps growing and growing and growing and cryptocurrency keeps growing and growing, you're going to see those in power who always want to control things say, that should be banned, that should be regulated. You're also seeing things with robots and two sides of robots. One, you're seeing the the, the reports, which we'll discuss in future weeks, of how many jobs are going to be lost because of, of robot technology and robots taking your jobs. But you're also seeing it on the other side where... I don't want to discuss this, but if, you, if you're following the news, you see this, where people are now using um, robots for sex. I, I think I heard, I, I don't know whether this is new or not, I don't follow this scene very closely, so excuse my ignorance, um, but there's now a new term, digisexual or something, digisex. It's, I had to Google it because I was like, what the hell is this now? And these, all these terms, I'm, I'm like, I'm really like a six-year-old child. I'm like, what does this mean? You know, all these letters, the alphabet. Oh, we've added a new thing. What's this? Oh, okay, i got to Google it. And then I'm like, oh, God. But yeah, I think it's digisex or digi- digisexual or something. And basically, it's where you're, you know, you're attracted to a robot. Um, we're having these changes in our world. You're seeing trade fundamentally change. And you've seen this more over the last 10 years, but it's going to get even more and more. So two types of trade is changing. One, again, I don't want to discuss the pros and cons of this, but you're seeing these arguments. You're seeing a more protectionist policy um, where trade is now kind of up for discussion. You're seeing this with Donald Trump and China. You're seeing this with Donald Trump and Mexico to pay for the wall. You're also seeing it in Europe right now where, because Britain decided to leave the European Union, trade is one of the big things. Well, can you, can you leave the European Union and then still want to be part of the trade and the trade agreements? You're seeing that as a bargaining chip. So you're seeing trade fundamentally be up for discussion. And if you believe in free trade, that can be kind of scary to you. But you're also seeing trade change in another way, and it's in the local community. What you're seeing is you look at, um, I think it was about two months ago, maybe more, maybe less, Amazon bought Whole Foods. What you're seeing is how we fundamentally trade is different. You know, the old days of going to, you know, the, the local store, the local mom and pop store, the going down to Kmart um, and going filling your trolley. Those days are kind of been reduced and more and more and reduced because we're buying more and more stuff online. You know, Christmas shopping you know, you can literally do your Christmas shopping on, on one site now, Amazon. You mightn't get everything you want, but you'll get the vast majority. The old days, if you go back 10 years ago, you used to have to go to a mall and you'd have to go to Sears and you'd have to go to Pennies and you'd have to go to Century 21. You'd have to go to Kmart. You'd have to go to Walmart. You'd have to go to a, a, a runner's shop for all your f- different things. You'd have to go to the electronics store. You'd have to go to Best Buy. Now you can literally just go on the internet from the comfort of your own home on your tablet. Buy that, buy that, buy that. Ship to my house. You're seeing fundamental trade change. You're seeing cars change. Where we're in the next 5, 10, 20, it might be 30 years. It's, I doubt it's going to be longer. I think it's going to be very much shorter. On self-driving cars. So our world is changing. Our world is changing very rapidly. But let's go to foreign policy, which is where I want to discuss. And we can discuss all of those issues that I just brought up in more in detail going forward. But one of the reasons I came back was because I was looking at the world and I was looking at the arguments based. 
And I'm looking at the world today and all I see is tyranny advancing. And government is the only answer. That seems to be the consensus of the vast majority of people around the world. Anytime we see a problem, government's the answer. But also I'm looking around at society, and I include America in this, where socialism and progressivism is becoming more and more socially acceptable. It's becoming more and more credible. You know, well, well, maybe socialism, there's something to it. You know, I see this argument, it always frightens the hell out of me, where, you know, someone comes up with a gun and go, and they found socialism, and kind of go, well, look, I know socialism hasn't worked in the past, but, you know, what if we did this version of it? This version would work. No, it won't. And we can discuss why in, in future shows. But also, I always find it frustrating, and I never know how to say this, because if you, if you don't like me, this is very easy to, to take out of context. The world hates Hitler. Rightfully so. Hitler is a horrific barbarian. And, and the, 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 uh, if we were to do a Mount Rushmore of bad people, Hitler would be there. Bad, bad, bad guy. But yet, we get outraged over Hitler. Yet, if I go and, and say to the media today, or, or to, to certain parts of culture, well, you know, what about Mao? Huh? Who? What about Posh? Huh? Who? Huh? Who? Who's that? What about Stalin or Lenin? Uh, 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 uh. Hey, let me go to a more one. Hey, what about Shay? Oh, he's cool. I love him. He's a revolutionary. I got me Shay shirt. It's brilliant. Uh huh. We are seeing Hitler's bad. Hitler's outraged. But anyone else that's bad is uh, either I don't know or Shay's cool. I love Shay. Shay's wonderful. Shay's my hero. He's a revolutionary. Hmm. Yeah, you're the guy, you're the person who probably talks about how people like me hate gays, right? Yeah, yeah, you hate, you right-wing nutbags, you, you hate the gays. You hate the gays, but Shay, I love Shay, he's a revolutionary, I love him, brilliant guy. Wish I could have met him. Mm-hmm. We're seeing this, where, you know, one person is demonized from society, rightfully so, but we don't demonize other people from society, we don't share the history. We need to share that history. Because our world is becoming more and more around government and more around socialism and control. But you're also seeing the world change rather dramatically overnight. Look at the last two years. We're having revolts in different countries. You saw this in Britain first with Brexit. You saw them leave the European Union. And the reason they left the European Union was, obviously there are many reasons, but one was they wanted to control their own borders. You saw, you saw this recently, and you're seeing this. This is a big issue in Europe right now, and it, no one knows how it's going to end out. It could end really, really bad. The issue in Catalonia and Spain, where they said, we want to be free. We want, don't want to be part of Spain anymore. You saw this in the Middle East as well, which very few people reported on in Kurdistan. They want their own chunk of independence. You see this in America. You see this in California, CalExit. You saw this in, in different movements in Europe, with France doing their own exit and, and Dutch doing their own exit and are talking about it. You're seeing revolts around. Also, if you're looking on the horizon of future ones that you're going to see, a big issue that should be discussed in mainstream media today is a potential revolt that affects America dramatically. And I can guarantee you, I don't see anyone talking about it. And if they are, I don't know who you are. If, they, if you know someone talking about this, please send them to me, because I'd love to hear what they say. The revolt within NATO. 
Because the issue in NATO is Turkey. You look at what's happening in Turkey right now and Erdogan. Is that really part of NATO? What happens? Because bear in mind, if someone attacks a NATO ally, all of NATO has to defend it. And you see what Turkey's doing right now? You, you, that's a big issue that needs to be discussed. You look around the world. Let's just give, give a very quick snapshot of all the changes around the world. You look at what's happening this week in North Korea, where they launched another ballistic missile. That is changing. That is, that's gone from, I thought it was kind of simmering down, to it just got ratcheted up a lot. Where Donald Trump is now meeting with the pre, uh, is talking a lot with the Chinese premier, trying to find a way to, to, to deal with this. There are more sanctions coming on the way. This is going to be an interesting issue, how it's going to be dealt with. You look at um, China. China is is very interesting to watch how they're, what they're doing to their currency, what they're doing um, with the hacks. Um, but uh, the hacks goes more, much further in China. It goes to North Korea as well. You're looking at Russia expand. Russia has an expanded presence in Europe right now. Again, no one ever talks about this. Everyone thinks the Ukrainian issue is just dead because I never hear a story about it. Europe is in an ongoing war right now, or part of Europe is, and Europe isn't responding. You're looking at Russia taking a more and more advanced step in the Middle East. And the Middle East is on fire. The Middle East over the last two, three weeks has changed dramatically so. And even over the last two months has changed. You're looking at terrorism become more and more accepted, more and more norm. And I, when I say accepted, I don't mean that well, as terrorism is okay. It's we've lost the shock factor. I'd ask you just to think back. Where were you on 9-11? And when you saw what happened on 9-11, can you remember the shock that you felt? The, oh my God, the world is ending. Do you remember that shock? That you knew that when you saw what you witnessed on 9-11, you literally knew, I'm going to go to sleep tonight and I'm going to wake up in a brand new world tomorrow. That fear, that, 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 the horror, the pain and suffering of all the families, all those emotions. Now look fast forward to today when we have terrorist attacks. It's like, it's sad, it's horrific, we call it out, but it's kind of become part of the norm. Because it's, not longer, it's no longer shock value because it's just, oh, well, another person has drove, driven his car on, into public people in, in London. Oh, that's really sad. Oh, there's another bomb on a train. Oh, that's really bad. We need to stop that. But it's, it's become part of the norm. But also, look at what's happened in the last couple of weeks. If, I don't know if you've been following this. The world has changed, and Ireland was part of this. Um, there was a major issue in Ireland where it was looking very likely, odds-on favoured up until this Monday just, just passed, that there was going to be a snap general election right before Christmas. So Ireland had, had relative peace. Then all of a sudden, an issue came up, which I don't want to get involved in, that, but basically it involved the Justice Minister and, the, and the, the Deputy Prime Minister, and they voted no confidence, and it was looking like a snap election. And it was going to be a low-turnout election, and my biggest fear has always been a certain party getting in power in Ireland. But also, in the last couple of weeks, you've seen Zimbabwe change. You've seen Zimbabwe take out one of the worst, most evil despots in Robert Mugabe. But here's the thing. Who's replaced him? 
when I'm talking about this snapshot, and I know I've bombarded you with a lot, but I'm just trying, this is, this is actually another foundation stone for where we're going in the new year. But when I look at the world today, I'd ask you just to look at the world the way I've just described on it, depending on your knowledge, if, you're, if you love foreign policy or not. But just ask yourself a question. Where are the shoots of freedom growing? Where has freedom been advanced? Where are we having discussions, not about empowering government, but empowering the individual? Where are we calling out the despots and the, the horrific, horrific people? Where are we calling out Hitler? Where, obviously, part of society does that all the time. But where are we calling out Mao? Where are we calling out Pot? Where are we calling out Stalin? Where are we calling out ISIS? And been really serious about it. Because here's the truth. Everyone loved the news the other day about Mugabe stepping down. Everyone loved it. Everyone was so excited about him stepping down. Everyone's like, yeah, freedom! The guy who replaced him. I want to quote something from an article. Hat tip the Daily Mail. It is hereby declared that February 21st of every year, henceforth, shall be a public holiday known to be known as the Robert Mugabe National Youth Day. They cited a government gazette. Is that freedom? That you get rid of one of the worst despots in, in world history, but also in your own history? And then the guy who replaces him oversees this and basically says, yeah, we're going to make him a, a public holiday. And it doesn't stop there. They're also building a university. And they're doing a lot of other stuff, and they, I think they've named an airport after him as well. Here's what should happen. If you, know, if you said, John, you have power for today, what would you do? I would build a statue of Mugabe. And I would have the biggest plaque going, and I'd put it in public squares. And the plaque would read as following. This is Robert Mugabe. He was the quote-unquote leader of Zimbabwe for the following years. He is one of the world's worst despots. Never, ever forget him. Because if you do, someone will rise up and become even worse than him and will take power. We as a world must never forget those who committed heinous crimes. But we also must never forget history. Because if we forget history, we will surely repeat it. When I come back, you might have noticed there was one thing missing off of what I was just giving the world snapshot. And that is the Middle East. And that is something I want to talk to you about when I come back after this break. Don't go anywhere, America. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn. On the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Freedom's Disciple on Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you so much for sticking with me, America. Before we get to the Middle East, I want to give you a bit of a sense of history of of one nation in, in the Middle East. Um, one nation and one set of people that has been vilified for as long as the world has known 
anybody or any as long as history has been recorded. So I want to just offer a very quick snapshot for you and ask you to close your eyes and just just listen to this as as a story and as history and and just you may learn something or you may not know about all of this history or how far back it goes. But it's the year 2000 BC, 4000 years ago. And the first Jewish tribal kingdoms in the land of Israel are formed. And they're formed under the prophet Abraham. And he's revered in all three faiths, by the way. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Fast forward to 1000 BC. And King David unites all the, British, or all the Jewish tribes in a single kingdom of Israel. And Jerusalem is the capital. After King David, King Solomon builds the first temple on the Temple Mount. If you ever hear history or you hear the issues of the day, you'll hear about the Temple Mount quite a lot. King Solomon built the first temple there. Fast forward 500 years to roughly about 580 BC. And the Babylonian Empire conquers Judea and it destroys the first temple. And it expels the Jews to Babylon, which we now know today as Iraq. After about 70 years, some of them return from exile. And the Jews, in around 515 BC, they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And they call it the second temple. Fast forward about another 200 years to 330 BC, give or take. Give or take a few days. Um, The Greek Empire of Alexander the Great conquers Judah. And after that, the Greek and the Syrian kings rule it. They rule it for about another 200 years to 142 BC. And the Jews finally win back independence and they set up the kingdom of Judea and is ruled by the Maccabee kings. That rule lasts for about 80 years. And in 63 BC, it loses independence to the Roman Empire. There's a non-independent kingdom of Judea and that's ruled by King Herod, which you'll see which you, if you've read the Bible, you know a lot about King Herod. And we fast forward to the year zero. And there was a famous Jew apparently born around that time. I, 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 can't, I can't find in the history book. He, there's no mention of this Jew that was born in, in zero AD. I, I don't know. Can't find him. Don't even know if it's a boy or a girl. Don't know. Um, sorry, that's just me being sarcastic. Fast forward to 66 AD. And Israel fights a war of independence. It fights a war of independence. And in 70 AD, the Romans sack Jerusalem and destroy the second temple. This battle goes on and they lose and then they fight another second war of independence in one, the year 132. It's also known as the Bar Kabar revolt. They have initial rebel victories and that leads to an independent Jewish state and it lasts about two years. However, Roman legions mercifully, they destroy the revolt. And this causes a lot of Jews from that area to be dispersed. They're all over Europe and and in parts of Africa. The Roman Empire, um, they changed the name of the land of Israel. They goes by a new name. And that name, which is modern day, what you'd know, is Palestinia. It's after the Philistines, who are the enemies of the Jews. This is very key to understanding modern day history. Fast forward a couple of hundred years to around 310 AD. um, The Christian Empire begins to rule Israel and Palestinia. And Christians then call it 
again another term which you know today the holy land so the reason i'm sharing this is because i want to talk to you about the middle east but i'm trying to lay a background because a lot of people think history just starts in the last five ten years but what i'm trying to do by this is to show you a lot of the stuff that we talk about today the temple mount these are issues going back three thousand years why we call it the holy land it's going back 1800 years Around 620 to 630 AD, a person, who again, who you may have heard of, Muhammad, forms the religion of Islam, and he forms it in Saudi Arabia. Just one thing to bear in mind about this time, around the 600s, in this period of time, Israel or, or Palestinian or whatever you want to call it at the time, there are no Arabs living in it at this time. Absolutely none. Go fast forward to about 638, 639 AD. Muslims, Arabs, they have armies and they capture Jerusalem and all of Israel and Palestinian. For the next 330 years, Arabs rule over the land and rule over the people there. They also, while they're during this time, they build the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aska Mosque. Again, that's very, very familiar if you follow politics of the day. These, these are very hot-button, hot-topic issues. And that's also on the Temple Mount. This, of course, leads to, fast forward to about 1100 AD or just before it, the first of the four Christian Crusades aimed at freeing the Holy Land starts. That all happens. And then from around 1300 the Muslim Mamducks from Egypt defeat the Crusades and they rule over Israel and Palestinian. Around this time, a lot of the area becomes depopulated and abandoned. There are pockets of people in, in different parts, but a lot of it is, you know, empty. Fast forward another couple of hundred years to 1514. There's a reason I'm saying this. It will all make sense in the next segment. The Turkish Ottoman Empire. If you've read history, these are ve- this is a very key empire. Conquers Israel and Palestinian. And it rules for around the next 400 years. However, there's a difference with their rule in some ways. Because during this time, there are small pockets and small communities of Jews all over Israel and Palestinian. And they're allowed to follow their own customs and their own religions and their own beliefs. But they need to understand one thing. They are second-class subjects under Islamic law. Fast forward to... Over the next 200 years, obviously history is very hard to tell exactly when, but for the next 200 years, under Ottoman rule, a lot of Jews return in small numbers, in small pockets, and they return to mainly four cities. They return to Jerusalem, they return to Safed, Hebron, and Tiberias. In 1863, because it takes a while, there was census, and obviously don't take these numbers with, with take them with a pinch of salt, because 1863, the census material, I don't know how accurate it is or how accurate history has reported it, but there was a census around then, and it showed about 50% of Jerusalem's population was actually Jewish, because of, of the, the small pockets that went back to those cities. Uh, by this time, Israel and, and the Holy Land and, and Palestinia, it's widely known as Palestine. Fast forward another couple of hundred years, and this is where I want to really talk to you about focusing on these from now on, because I want to talk to you about the Middle East. In 1917, there was a Balfour Declaration, 
and it was the British Foreign Secretary, and he issued the intention to establish a Jewish home nation in Palestine once the Turks, i.e. the Ottoman Empire, were defeated. In 1918, Britain controls, assumes control of Palestine, becomes Britain, British-mandated Palestine. You might have heard that in the past. In 1920, in April 1920, British, Britain and France... Those are the key actors, remember these, because I'm going to come back to this in the Middle East in the next segment. Britain and France confirmed the Balfour Declaration. In July 1922, the League of Nations, which was the preamble to the United Nations that you know today, 51 countries vote to give the UK a mandate to rule Palestine and take steps to set up a Jewish national home there to facilitate Jewish immigration. Some stats for you just to bear in mind around this time. In September 1922... Britain allocated 77% of all the mandated land, that is the land east of the River Jordan, east of the River Jordan, to an Arab state that they back then called Transjordan, you know today as just Jordan. And there was no Jewish settlement allowed in those states, 77%. The remaining 23% west of the River Jordan, which is basically Israel, Judea, Samaria, a.k.a. the West Bank, was earmarked for Jewish homeland. Just to bear that in mind, that is 3.4% from the Turkish Empire lands. The Arabs have the other 96% of it. Just something to bear in mind of statistics, if you love numbers. In between 1920 a lot of Arabs and past, you know, from 1920 to 1930, let's say, next 10 years, a lot of the Arabs of the area just you know, want to live in peace with their Jewish neighbors. A lot of them, but not all of them. There's a lot of attacks on Jewish communities in mandatory Palestine. For the next 20 years, you see a lot of people emigrating to that area. Because they faced anti-Semitic persecution. You've heard this if you've read world history. This is the preamble to World War II. You've seen it in Russia. You see it in Ukraine. You see it in Eastern Europe. 1933, a year that most people should know, Hitler, that bad guy, horrific dude, took power in Germany. And the Nazi regime systematically strips all Jews of their rights. 1936, give or take, Jews take about, are about one-third of the population of mandatory Palestine. One-third. 1941 to 1945, you all know where this is going. The Holocaust. Six million Jews are murdered. Murdered horrifically by Hitler and the Nazi party. However, during this time, people always ask me, John, you, I've heard you use the word Islamo-Nazi. What does that mean? Well, during that time when Hitler was in power and the world was horrified, the Palestinian leader, the Grand Mufti, met with Hitler. Not only did he meet with Hitler, he expressed support for Hitler. Not only did he express support for Hitler, but he planned to extend the Holocaust to Palestine to, quote, exterminate the Jews living there and to raise the Islamic troops for the German army. The modern-day Islamo-Nazi movement started with Hitler. 
Obviously, we all know how World War II ended. In about 1948, this is very important if you like statistics, just to bear these numbers in mind. 1948-1949, World War II has ended. You have all these, the, 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 the area, Israel, Palestinian, whatever, Palestine, whatever word you want to call it. Roughly 9% of that land was owned by Jews, and it was purchased privately. Around 21% of that land was owned privately by Arabs. The rest, about 70% of that land, was state land owned by the former Ottoman Empire, which is Turkey. On May 14, 1948, Israel is declared an independent nation, an independent democratic Jewish nation. The next day, the very next day, it is invaded by five Arab national armies. The IDF defeats this these armies and pushes them back. It's amazing when you read history and you read that history. One of the amazing things if you want or if you're interested in history reading about that army is it's very much very different, but it's about the the very similar to the American Revolution at the start. You have American Israel, both poorly armed, both poorly trained, you know, get going against people who are and they both overcome. It's very interesting if you ever want to read it. Fast forward to 1964. The Arab League is summoned, is in Cairo. And again, this is a key actor in the area. And it creates the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, with the stated goal of liberating Palestine, which, i.e., is wiping out Israel through armed insurrection, through armed struggle, and through war. Fast forward a couple of years, June 1967. Egypt closes the Strait of Tehran. And Egypt, Jordan, and Syria plan a joint attack on Israel. Israel makes a preemptive strike and defeats all the three countries in the Six-Day War. Again, this is a term you might have heard, the Six-Day War. Because of this war, Israel now controls the West Bank, which is Judea and Samaria, the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Golan Heights. If you've read, you'll hear a lot about the Golan Heights if you read Foreign Policy. In September 1967, Israel offers its first land for peace, which is we will give land back that we, we, just, we won through this war as long as you give us peace. However, that August, Arab leaders said no to peace with Israel, no to negotiations with Israel, and no to recognition of Israel. 1973, the Yom Kippur War. If you know anything about Judaism, Yom Kippur is one of their most holiest sacred days. That October, Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack on Israel. The war happened, lasted 18 days, and Israel won it. Then it starts getting more positive for Israel in the Middle East. 1977, the Egyptian president Sadat addressed the Knesset, which is the Israeli parliament. And in 1979, Egypt, Egypt became the first Arab state to sign a peace treaty with Israel. What were the de- deals of that it's peace treaty? Well, Israel returned over the entire Sinai Peninsula in 1967. It dismantled its settlements and handed over oil rights and tourist resorts. And Egypt promised not to attack Israel. Seems like a very fair deal, don't you think? The same happened in 1994 with Jordan. It signed a similar peace deal with Israel. However, certain people weren't happy about these peace deals. 
1987, the first infinata. I can never say that word, but you know what I'm trying to say. And basically, that is a Palestinian uprising against Israel control. 1988, an organization you're going to hear a lot of going forward, Hamas, a terrorist organization, was founded. The Oslo Accords in 1993. Israel agreed to give limited independence back to the Palestinian Authority to govern around 40% of the West Bank, which contained 96% of all Arabs. In return, they asked for one thing. Palestinians would stop targeting and terrorizing Israel. Didn't go well. Fast forward to 2000, under Bill Clinton. Israel offers yet another land for peace. 92% of the West Bank, plus all of Gaza, the Palestinians, plus East Jerusalem, to form an independent state. The Palestinians reject that offer. And this starts the second infinata. And this kills about 1,200 Israelis over the next eight years. Fast forward to 2005. Big step. There's a lot of discussion about this, positively or negative. But 2005, Israel evacuated all its troops and all Jewish residents from Gaza in the hope of peace. How did they respond? Hamas takes over Gaza. And to this day has launched many terrorist attacks, many rocket attacks, many mortar attacks against civilians from this area. Fast forward to 2007, the Annapolis Peace Conference. Again, Israel offers another land for peace. The Palestinians reject that offer. It was for 94% of the West Bank. Land swaps in East Jerusalem and an independent Palestinian state. They rejected it out of hand. People ask why you have issues in the Middle East. We're going to discuss that come on up next. But why we do, I just want to read something that you need to hear. The Hamas Charter. Hamas, 1988 it was formed. From its preface, Israel will rise and will remain erect until Islam eliminates it, as it had eliminated its predecessors. Article 7 of the Hamas Charter also quotes the Hadith, not the Quran, the Hadith. You might have heard this saying, but let me repeat it in full context. The hour of judgment will not come until Muslims will fight the Jews and kill them, until the Jews hide behind rocks and trees, which will cry, O Muslim, O Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. I also quote from the Hamas Charter in Article 13, and I quote, There is no solution to the Palestinian problem except by jihad. The Bertie I was talking about was the earlier this week, Israel celebrated its 70th anniversary, its 70th birthday. It's amazing, amazing history. So why did I share that this this week? Well, because it's 70 years old and to celebrate it, but also to talk about the Middle East and the problems we are facing today. When we come back, we will discuss them and we will address them. Don't go anywhere, America. You're listening to Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Disciple On Demand. On the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you so much for sticking with me, America. I hope today's show and the last couple of segments are, are you've really enjoyed or it's given you plenty of food for thought at, at the very least. I want to talk to you about the Middle East and the reason I talked about the Israeli history was one to give you the history of Israel but also to lay some key hot button issues, topics that you have heard that are going to be very synonymous in what I want to talk to you about the Middle East that some of them you may have heard before. But before I do that, I want to underline a principle that I, this, that's key to this show and, and how I prepare and, and how I want this show to go forward for you. One of the things I notice, and it really is getting more and more frustrating to me by the day, is because as the world is changing so quickly, we're getting on the sides issue. I look at social media. I see this in America. I see this in Europe. I see this in, in all over the place, all over the world, is our side is always right. And the other, it's the other side that's the problem. I see this in America. Let's just talk about America and, not the, and ignore the rest of the world. I see this in foreign policy between um, Democrats and Republicans. Republicans think Democrats are the worst things in sliced bread on foreign policy, on any issue, pretty much. The Democrats suck. The Democrats say the exact same thing about the Republicans. You also have it within the Republican, um, the right, quote-unquote, even though that's a term that's not right, you also have it between, you have the, the neocon, the neocons, you know, those dangerous people um, who basically see intervention as always the policy in America as the world police. And you also have libertarians go, well, it's always isolation and, and Ron Paul and just never touch anybody and never do anything and, and just leave everyone alone. And we all look, want to blame the other side. I don't ever want to do that. I, I'm not on anyone's side on this issue. I'm on the side of truth. I will lay out the case. If you disagree with me and you go, I see the world different, I'm okay with that. But I won't be taking a side of, this is, they're the problem. Because honestly, and this is what I want to talk to you about, quite honestly, American foreign policy has sucked on both sides for a very long time. And I think most people know that. And I'm going to ask you some questions about American foreign policy, specifically to the Middle East. And just to see if you disagree with me, if you think, no, it's been great or it's been good here and bad here, well, then we can have that discussion. But I found this article. Someone shared it. A friend of mine shared it online this week, and it really annoyed me because it's the type of article and the type of narrative that really frustrates me. And basically, the title of the article, it's by David Horowitz. The root of the disasters in the Middle East. The root cause of the disasters in the Middle East. The subheadline is, The culprit is Obama and his policies of appeasement, betrayal, and retreat. There's one sentence I want to read out to you. It's in the third paragraph. In fact, the primary cause of the disasters in the Middle East is the Democratic Party sabotage of the war in Iraq. And he basically makes out a case. Now, it's a good article in the fact that if you want to look at all the issues in the Middle East, it gives a decent portrayal of all the issues in all the different countries, which we're going to discuss now. But if you think Obama is the root problem of the cause of the issues in the Middle East... I'm sorry, you're not factually accurate. You're not factually accurate. Blaming Obama might be popular. It's not true. He is not the root cause of these problems. He just made them a hell of a lot worse. Now, to be clear, anyone who thinks I'm defending Barack Obama, is there anything Barack Obama did in the Middle East that was positive? If there is, I sure as hell can't find it. He was a disaster. 
I would also go and make this much deeper. Um, John Kerry and Hillary Clinton arguably should go down, if not the worst, some of the worst Secretary of State of all time. But that you have, there's a lot of people who should be up for that nomination, let's be fair. They were horrific. They made things a lot worse. You just have to look at what happened under their tenure, whether it was Benghazi, whether it was Libya, whether it was Syria, whether it was Saudi Arabia, whether it was Iran, whether it was Palestine. Look at all the issues, whether it was Egypt, pretty much on the wrong side of every issue. In fact, they were, a great, they were actually a great barometer because you'd look at the issue and kind of go, where do they stand on it? Okay, I'm the exact opposite. And you might have had a chance of being right. You wouldn't have been guaranteed, but you would have had a good chance. The root cause of the problems in the Middle East is not Barack Obama. He just made them. He just threw gasoline on a fire that was already burning. The issues in the Middle East was not anything to do with the Iraq war that you're seeing. It also had nothing to do, as Ron Paul people and supporters who generally, if, you, if you're a Ron Paul supporter, chances are you hate me. It is nothing to do with American intervention. Oh, it's American getting involved, and America just won't mind its own business, and that's why all these terrorist attacks are happening. No. If you re- heard me talk earlier on about Israel, you might have heard something that was missing, but it wasn't. It was just called a different name. The Balfour Declaration. Remember, post-World War I, the Ottoman Empire. You want to go down and go to the roots of the problem in the Middle East? The first place, the first route you start is the Balfour Declaration. Declaration, or what people and ISIS call Sykes-Picot. Long story short, what Sykes-Picot was, was World War I, they said, we need to defeat Germany. Get involved, and we'll help you. That's, I've been very, I'm basically giving this a, a one-liner. And basically, Britain and France signed an agreement that they, when they signed, openly admitted they had no intention of following. And then they redesigned all of modern day is of the Middle East. You look at the boundary lines that you know today, you think you know all the boundary lines about Jordan and, and Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan. You think you know all those boundaries? Those boundaries are because of Sykes-Picot. And if you want proof of this, by the way, there are some ISIS training videos and ISIS propaganda videos out there where they actively say they have a sign where it has Sykes-Picot and a big X through it, and they have people talking about it where this is the Sykes-Picot border. We do not recognize it. We do not respect it. We ignore it. We fight them. That is a root cause of the Middle East. But it doesn't fit a narrative that anyone likes because everyone loves to say America sucks. America's the problem. America, America, America. Now, if you want to go to one of the main routes of the problems in the Middle East, don't blame America. Blame Britain and blame France. Blame Britain and blame France. But that blame game only gets you so far. Because here's the truth. That even isn't even the root of the problem in the Middle East. It is a big root, but it's not the root. The big route you have in the Middle East is that in that small neighborhood of the area, you have three main religions and faiths competing. You have Judaism, you have Christianity, and you have Islam. And one of those religions today, to this day, let's not talk history, today, 2017, December 2nd, 2017, one of those religions is not tolerant of the other two. 
Heck, one of those religions isn't even tolerant of its own religion if it goes against what they say. One of those religions promotes hate and jihad. I love when people, I said a couple of weeks ago, when I was talking about the terrorist attack and correctly identifying the enemy, a person actually mentioned, going, you know, you're so weak, you, you defend Muslims and you're, you're weak on terror. Uh-huh. You know, you, you don't see all Muslims as a problem, you're the enemy. Okay, wonderful. I'm the enemy to you, I don't care. The problem we have is not Muslims. The problem we have is an Islamist problem. The problem we have is a section of Islam, whether it's big or small, we can debate that. There is a section of Islam that tolerates compliant, does not tolerate any non-compliance of what they believe. And they don't care whether you're Christian, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Islamic, or whether you're an atheist or a deist or a Buddha. If you don't see the world they do, they kill you. That is called a strict version of fascism. Hence why another word I call them Islamo-fascists. We are facing major upheaval in the Middle East. Because I want to fast forward to you to today. And the reason I spoke about that for so long, what I just spoke about, the underlying principle is, I am not getting into a game of, of they suck and we're brilliant. Because let's look at the foreign policy. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Saudi Arabia is an ally of the United States of America? Now the people I ask on both sides of the aisle say no. The vast majority. Okay, so you say Saudi Arabia is not an ally of America. But the Democrats suck, John. The Democrats are really bad. Obama was really, oh, Obama's the root Okay. Did George Bush say Saudi Arabia is not an ally of America? Did Donald Trump say that? Did George Bush Sr. say that? Hmm. The problem we have is not a left-right problem. The problem we have is in large chunks of, of the issues on foreign policy, a lot of American presidents kind of are really bad on foreign policy. And it's bad because of their own opinions, but also because they are surrounded by people who are sharing bad opinions. They are sharing the the, the, the popular opinion of the day that just makes it all easy. The issues in the Middle East, the root cause is Islamists and Sykes-Picot. Everything else has just made it worse. People love to say about the Iranian issue and Iran. Iran was an issue and has been for the last 30 years, but it, always, it wasn't historically always an issue. But let's look at the issues in the Middle East today, because we are seeing fundamental change. And I don't know whether this, how this ends, by the way. I don't have any spoiler alerts. I don't have any um, people to cheer for. You look at what's happened in Saudi Arabia, if you've been following it over the last couple of weeks. Where this young crown prince, it could be really good or it could be really bad. If you haven't been following this, basically the, the crown prince of the House of Saud, Saudi Arabia, basically has, if you're a conspiracy theorist or don't like them, you're saying he's basically done a, a power grab. He's arrested a load of crown princes on, on, on charges of corruption. Uh, a couple of them have died in very, this all happened in 24 hours, by the way. It was incredible to... Not incredible, but it was. If it was a movie, it'd be fascinating to watch. A couple of them died. One died in a in a helicopter crash. And you see all these people been arrested, 
And this was like six hours after an attack happened on its border. Now, it could be really bad, or he could be really, really good, and he's going, we need to solve what's happening in our own house to fix what's going on in the Middle East. Because there are enemies in the Middle East which are growing. I don't know. I Honestly, I've done research on Saudi Arabia. I can't tell you if the guy's good or not. But you have that happening in Saudi Arabia. You have the unprecedented move of the president and the premier of Lebanon, who goes, who, as far as I can tell in history, and I think people are reporting this, it's the first time in world history this has happened. The president of Lebanon went to Saudi Arabia and resigned his office. That has never happened where a, con- a premier or leader of a foreign country has gone to another country to resign. That's not good. But John, you're forgetting the good news in the Middle East. ISIS is defeated. ISIS is defeated. Uh-huh. What's going to replace ISIS? Because the battleground has already shifted. You'll always have these terrorist groups. The same way the Taliban is defeated and, and Al-Qaeda is defeated, they're still existent. Just, you never really hear from them. They're very much in, in little sections of society. I don't know whether that's going to happen with ISIS, if it's going to be eradicated or if it's going to change. Who knows? But what you're seeing is a, is a fundamental partnership between Iran and Iraq. Which is very, very dangerous. They could be the next big issue to deal with in the Middle East. And how are you going to deal with that? You look at Libya, what's going on there. It's a, it's a disaster. You look at Syria. You know, I love, I love people who go, well, it's just the Democrats. It's just the Democrats. Look at the Republicans. I look, I've researched Syria. You have Assad, who is a brutal dictator. And you have the opposition to Assad, who are, in any other world, America would be against them. Who do you back in that? Who do you back in that leadership? If you're the Republicans, you've been on both sides of the aisle. If you've been Democrats, you've probably either publicly or not publicly been on both sides of that fence. Remember John McCain and Lindsey Graham went out and got their picture taken with them? They're freedom fighters. And then all of a sudden they're like Assad, they're pro-Assad again. There is no one to root for in Syria. There is no one to root for in Syria. But have you heard anyone say that on either side of the aisle? There is no one good to root for. Then you have what's happening in Turkey. Obviously this has calmed down over the last couple of months. But you had a big power grab a couple of months ago in Turkey. You're seeing major change happening right in front of your eyes in the Middle East. So here's my question for you. Do you want to play a game where you just blame the other side? Or do you want to actually have a conversation about, if you want to play the blame game, let's blame everyone. I don't want to be part of that conversation either. I want to be part of a conversation that makes the case for freedom. Because there is a situation in the Middle East where you can potentially go f- grow freedom as much as you possibly can. It'll never be perfect. As long as you have people, and I'm not going to make this about Islam, I'm just going to say this in general. As long as you have people out there who think the following. If you don't agree with me, you're my enemy. That's where it starts, and it goes all the way up to, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to kill you. 
As long as you have a set of people, whether you're Islamic, whether you're Christian, whether you're Jewish, whether you're atheist, whether you're Democrat, whether you're Republican, as long as you have people who have that attitude, that it starts with you're my enemy and it goes all the way up to I'm going to kill you. We will always have some type of terror or some type of, at the very least, unrest in society. Whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in America, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Asia, this will always happen. The case for freedom needs to be made. Where you do not have the right to control anyone else. But we also need to have a conversation about addressing the enemy. Because when you have a hadith that says, Oh Muslim, oh Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Come kill him. How can you have peace when you have an ideology that teaches that? How can you have peace when you have an ideology that preaches that, that promotes it, and that demands other people have that opinion? Because there are some bright spots Not perfect, but bright spots in the Middle East. I'll ask you a question again about American foreign policy. The Iraqi Kurds, do you think they're an ally of America or do you think they should be? There's a question for you to ponder. I'll give you my answer. My answer is the Iraqi Kurds, while not perfect have a lot of pro-Western freedom ideology in them. And they should be backed, and they should be supported, because they're actually making gains against, made a lot of gains against ISIS. And all they want is their own independent state and to be left alone. Yet, who was the last person that backed them? Has Donald Trump backed them? Has Barack Obama backed them? Has George Bush backed them? Has Bill Clinton backed them? Has George Bush Sr. backed them? Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? I'll also just tackle one last issue. Which is an issue that's just exclusive to the right. There are those in the world and on the right, quote-unquote, who see every issue and see America as the world police. There are also those as I said earlier on about Ron Paul supporters and libertarians who go, if we just leave everyone alone, the world will leave us alone. And just stay out of people's business. Let's address the first one. Should America be the world police? No. There are people who I've talked to and I've had many conversations about, private conversations, who think that the only way you solve the Middle East problems is by America being the strong person in the Middle East. I'm sorry I disagree. I fundamentally disagree. If you take any situation, and I'll make this about any situation, whether it's about countries, whether it's about communities, whether it's about families, if it is not the responsibility of the people involved who it affects the most to fix their problems, and it's about an outside force, you're doing it wrong. And I don't care the situation. Has America got a role? Sure. Has the world community got a role? Yes. But to be the world police, the biggest people who should be solving the Middle East problem is people who live there and who are affected by it every day. 
How do we solve it? I don't have the answers. I wish I had a magic pill to share with you. But I would imagine if I had my way, it would be by sharing freedom with each and every one of them. Sharing a new path forward. Where you're free to worship your God, whether that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whether you're a Jew or a Christian, whether you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior or not, or whether you believe in the Prophet Muhammad and Islam, or whether you don't believe in any of them, whether you believe in that rock, that rock in your front yard is your God. You have a freedom to worship it. You also have a freedom to share your ideology with others in the hope that they will follow you and that you will grow your ideology. Sure you do. You don't have a right to compel or control people. To the other side of non-intervention, human psychology proves you're wrong. Human psychology proves you're wrong. Human psychology proves that those who are bullies will only ever target those who they know won't hit back. They usually target the weakest in society, but if someone says, I'm just isolationist, I'm not going to do anything, they will target you. But also, if you understand the history of the Middle East, which I've tried to share, which it's a very vast subject, I'm trying to condense it down into you know, 30, 40 minutes for you, and try and make it as interesting as possible. The reason they hate America is not because of your interventionist policies. The reason they hate America is because of the ideals you stand for. You're the exact opposite to what they preach and what they promote. That is why they hate you. That is why they see you as the big Satan. Because at your best, at America at its best, you are a shining light for liberty. You are a shining light for empowering the individual at your best. At your best, you are the Statue of Liberty shining a light for the world going, you can have this too. Now, when you understand the dogma of their religion where women are second-class citizens, women can be beaten. If you don't share the same ideology, I can kill you. If you're Jewish, the trees will call out and beg me to kill them. They seek to control you. They seek to control your dress. They control everything about your life. You're the polar opposite of them at your best. That is why they hate you. Has, have they been annoyed by some of your foreign policy decisions? Sure. But it is so much deeper. And until we have conversations about that, And in an honest, respectful way. And if it's okay if you disagree with some of what or all of what I have said. We need to have conversations. We need to have a conversation about the Middle East. Because the Middle East is changing. And I'll finish with this. The Middle East actors are big. You see the situation in Syria, you see the situation in Iraq and Iran, you see the situation with Iran and its nuclear weapon capabilities, you see the situation with Turkey, you also then see that, I didn't even mention the terrorist groups that you have there, you've got Hamas, which is Palestine, you have Hezbollah, which you're going to hear a lot about going forward, by the way, everyone stopped talking about Hezbollah in the mid, early 
to mid 2000s everyone was talking about hezbollah as a big threat they just stopped and talked about because of al-qaeda um, the taliban al-qaeda and then isis but hezbollah never went anywhere hezbollah is still around and still a very very bad organization you have other outside forces like boko haram and al-shabaab in different regions but pledging allegiance to isis you also have another outside actor, which how you deal with going forward is going to be critical to your success, to the success of the world, but also to peace in the Middle East. And that is Russia. Until Americans of all sides, regardless of who you voted for, can come together and say Russia is not our ally. And Russia is at the fundamental opposite of what we stand for. You have problems. Because Russia is a big player in the region. Russia is backing Iran and backing Assad. There are also many other things they're doing in the area. But that is who they're backing. And each day that passes, Russia is gaining more and more influence in the Middle East. Is there any part of you that says, Huh, Russia's gaining more and more influence in the Middle East, that's going to end well. Is there any part of you, there's a foreign policy question for you, just your good instinct, is there any part of you that went, I don't have a problem with that, John. I don't see why why you're upset about it. That is what's happening in the Middle East. When I come back, we're going to talk about three stories, because I've given you an awful lot to think about today, and I apologize that this show turned out a lot heavier than I had anticipated. This is a show that, I had this show prepped very different to how it came out. But when I come back, we're going to share, have a bit of fun. We're going to share a couple of stories from this side of the Atlantic that will make you kind of go, hmm, what did you think was going to happen? Don't go anywhere if you want a bit of fun, America, and have a laugh as we approach this season of hope, this season of joy, and this season of our, my Savior and your Savior if you're a Christian been born. Don't go anywhere, America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Freedom's Disciple On Demand On the Blaze Radio Network Thank you so much for sticking with me, America I hope today's show has been in, given you some plenty of food for thought As always, I'm on Twitter at Freedom Disciple and on Facebook at Jonathan Don 58 If you look me up, engage with me, send me a Send me a public message, I'll reply. Send me a private message, I'll reply. I love engaging with each and every one of you. To those who reached out over the Thanksgiving, I appreciate you. I hope you all had a, a wonderful time. I know today's show has been kind of heavy, so I wanted to finish with a couple of a couple of sto- very short stories that are lighter-hearted, um, but very serious. And we'll also, I was just planning in the show prep to discuss an issue um, that happened in Poland this week with Christians and businesses, and we can discuss that next week, um, because I think it's something that we need to address very clearly, because this movement might come to America. 
But to finish up, a couple of stories for you. And these are lighter-hearted stories, but one of them is is just I I just I would love to be a fly in the wall. But just as because there's so much bad stuff and and in depth stuff going on in the world, I've actually found myself reading stories that I would normally never read. Um, and I'm going to share a couple of with you today because I found a load this week. The first one was. Man accidentally kills himself after taking the pin out of a grenade and then posting, posing to take a photo with it. I read this and I went, this can't be true. Alexander Chechik had sent an image to his friend showing himself holding the grenade mo- moments before it don- detonated, killing himself instantly. Police say he sent several images to friends where he posted with the hand grenade and that it indicates he had no intent of taking his own life. They say he believed he expected the grenade would not explode as long as he did not throw it. Now, this is a tragic story, but there is a lesson to be learned here. You know, those who believe in the Second Amendment, this is why it's stories like this that we need to be going, this is why you need responsibility. You don't mess around with firearms. Anyone who believes in the Second Amendment who listens to this knows this. Um, if you're if you're around weapons or you're around things, you have to have responsibility, personal responsibilities. Taking the, the 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 pin out of a grenade, and having the the foolish thought, if that's what he had, of hey, this won't go off unless I throw it, is oh my god, this is scary, and this should be a lesson to everyone. This is why we need responsibility, not government responsibility. The second one, the, you know, if you ever, do you ever hear, think of how conversations go between people? If I, I, I can't imagine, my brain won't let me, ha- let me get to this story of how this conversation went. So I was reading, scrolling through social media, and I think, I think I found this one on Twitter. Um, man, 60, with metal cup lodged up his bottom claims, he learned the lesson of his life after it was inserted by quack doctors as a cure for stomachache. I clicked on this article and went, what has happened? I quote from the article, Hospital staff were astonished after a man was admitted with a metal cup lodged up his bottom. A 60-year-old Indian farmer apparently agreed to have the 21 centimeter, 21 centimeters, that's about, give or take, 9 or 10 inches. So we're not talking about a thimble, we're talking about a metal cup. Uh... It was that 21 centimeters tall inserted there by a local quack doctor as a cure for a stomach ache. After realizing he was still in pain despite the treatment and his family arranged for him to see genuine medics at, medi- medics at a private clinic, they immediately performed an endoscopy and an x-ray and were horrified to find such a destruction, obstruction up in his digestive system. The man who is now in recovery after an hour and a half long operation said, quote, I have learned the lesson of my life. I will never go to a quack doctor again. I was a regular to the village doctor, so I still cannot imagine as to why they did something like this with me. One should never go to a quack. Go to a qualified doctor, even if you have a very minor ailment of any kind. In a bid to save money, it is not wise to risk your life. End quote. I would love to know how this conversation went. Like, this is not, like... (sighs) As someone who has major stomach and bowel problems, I have a I have a stomach and, and bowel disease. Um, and 
I won't bore you with the details, but there are certain things I can't eat. Spice is one of them. I can't drink much alcohol, even though I don't drink anyway to, much to start with. But it's it's a disease you have to monitor. And it's gotten better over the years as I've gotten better at monitoring it. But I can't... How does the conversation go? I You go to... Even to a quack. Ah, oh, doctor, I have this pain in my stomach. Oh, okay. Uh, tell me the pain, son. And, and you list out, I've got a pain here, and the pain does this, and it's more of an ache or a sharp pain or a throbbing, whatever it is. Because, you know, they ask you all these questions. And then the, the doctor goes, oh, okay, I have the solution for you. Oh, what's the solution? See this metal cup that's 21 centimeters tall? I'm going to shove this up you. It'll solve all your problems. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, okay, I can see how that makes... I can see how that would solve my stomach pain. It's... This is not don't go to a quack. This is use common sense. It's... I know it's not funny and you shouldn't laugh, but there is a part of me who would just love to know. That conversation on that wall. And also, I know this is not right, but how much convincing did the guy take? You know, it's... It it it, it screamed to me. I, I remember... Um, I know I shouldn't make fun. I'm sorry. Um, it's just a lighter story. He's okay. He's safe. He's healthy. There's not a problem with him. But it's... I remember when I used to work on a sales floor. Um, one of the things, because used, I used to, you used to have to make calls. And, you know, when you're doing cold calling, anyone's ever done it, it's, it's very hard. And it can get very upsetting when you don't, you know, when people hang up and you curse you and abuse you and you have to make it light and funny. But one of the things we used to do was you'd have to say a word. And it'd be the most outrageous word. And you had to make it totally fit in a sentence that wouldn't stand out. It's It's incredible. The last story I want to talk to you about was, this is a frustrating one, um, because I don't know why people would do this. Um, and I know if, if my boss, Glenn, ever hears this story, I'm sure he'll freak out as well. Machine gun prop used by Clint Eastwood in Where De- Eagles Dare is handed into the police under gun amnesty. Police in the UK were holding a uh, weapon amnesty were stunned after a man handed in Clint Eastwood's MP40 machine gun he used in the films where Eagles Dare. Why would you hand in a prop to an amnesty ban? But it gets worse. Somerset police say the German submachine gun was dropped at Bridgewater Police Station by an unnamed man who worked in the film industry. Okay, why would you use a gun in this in this culture where you have access to Amazon and, and auctions and, and everything in the world? It's not like you have to go research it. Just go online and say, hey, I have this machine gun prop. I want to sell it. Who wants to buy it from me? You could have made a fortune. Instead, he turns it into the, to the, to an amnesty ban in, in the UK. Uh, he told the, the officers the MP40 machine gun was used by Eastwood in the movie while he was disguised as a Nazi. Now, there is one, I suppose, bright thing, because normally what happens in these amnesties is they destroy all the guns. Um, the more interesting items, thankfully, including this gun, will go to the Royal Armouries Museum in Leeds. So far, they've actually had a lot of different things. Um, apparently, in this article, it says they've had 12 World War II handguns, including a Colt 45 a P-38 and a Russian um, semi-automatic weapon. They were also collected. Why would you bring in that? Why wouldn't you sell it? Just, uh, it it frustrates me. At least it's gone to a good home, I suppose, in a museum. But here's where I wanted to take this story was, if you're living in the UK right now, 
and you're seeing what's happening in the world. You're seeing what's happening in the UK, all the terrorist attacks. This amnesty, which lasted about a month, got 220 weapons. Why would you still hand in your gun after everything you see in the world? It's incredible to me. It's incredibly frightening and scary to me that people are still handing in their guns, even in this culture. I want to finish up this show today by a personal note. Um, Because something happened this week, and it really annoyed me. It really annoyed me on social media. We are living in a world with major change, as we discussed earlier on. But also what's changing is our attitudes to our fellow humans. We are living in a world where, to be blunt, you can be a jackass and you can be a jerk and it's just become the norm. You can be loud-mouthed, arrogant, foul, and just, it's everyone's accepts it. It seems that common decency is going out the window. Now, if you've listened to this show or you've seen me on Twitter and on social media, you know I haven't watched the NFL this year. With the exception of the first game, the Giants and the Cowboys, and about five minutes of the Giants-Eagles game when I was in JFK Airport. But I haven't watched, I haven't watched any sport of the NFL. And normally I'd watch the Giants, but I'd also watch other teams play because I, I love the sport. But everything that's happened has made me appalled. So I haven't watched. But this week, I saw on tw- I only saw it trending on Twitter, so I said I'd look. The New York Giants quarterback, Eli Manning, was benched. So I went and I read it. Now, if you're not a Giants fan, this, this still applies to you. If you're not an Eli Manning fan, this still applies to you. I just want to take this in a direction. Whether you like the Giants or not, or whether you like Eli Manning or not, is irrelevant to this story. Eli Manning has been with the Giants since 2004. He is a long-time player with the Giants. He is easily, in the statistic-wise, and in other category-wise, easily, if not the best, one of the best quarterbacks to ever play for the New York football Giants. He won them two Super Bowls while being the Super Bowl MVP in both of them. And he also beat the New York, sorry, not the New York, he beat the New England Patriots twice. New York and Boston have that rivalry. While New York Giants and the Patriots don't play each other very often, it's a big game when they do. And they, they still, that rivalry carries over to football. He beat them not once, but twice in the Super Bowl. It, as most Americans, they don't like Tom Brady and the Patriots. For many different reasons. He beat the team America doesn't like twice. When you make this decision. How do you think you make it? How do you think you would make it? Would you call someone into the office. And have that conversation face to face. Man to man. Would you do it over the phone. And have a phone call conversation. Because obviously. You know it's the off season. You mightn't be in the same place. Or would you do it by text message? You guessed it. They did it by text message. You know, 
on this program, I am determined to be an advocate for the free market and to stand against the perils of socialism. The reason I share this the story with you, one, is because I'm always consistent. Even if I think you're wonderful and I'm a big supporter, I call you out when you're wrong. For this story, I say shame on the New York Giants. I say shame on the family that owns us. I say shame on all the management that went behind us, from Ben McAdoo all the way to the GM and all the way around us. That is not how an organization works. But secondly, because this story only goes to enforce a narrative that is out there, socialism is becoming more and more acceptable in society. And this narrative that, you know, all these big business owners, they don't care. You're only a number to them and they have no compassion or no heart. They just use you and abuse you and cast you away when you become worthless. And what we need is a more fairer, uh, you know, more compassionate society. That story plays into it. I share this story not as a New York Giants fan, but as someone who has, we have to have conversations about the capitalism that's going on today. And we're going to be doing that in future weeks. But I wanted to address that while it, was, while it was live. Because that is horrific. You do not... Where is common decency? Even if the guy had, was never your great quarterback, even if he was just in the organization a year, never won a Super Bowl, never did anything, you don't drop someone by text. How would you feel to your job? Imagine you just got a text on your phone. Hey, we, we decided to stop contacting you. How would you feel? You'd be rightfully annoyed, let alone one of your you know, top players. But also it sends a message to other people. Imagine you're, imagine you're just a new college. The draft is coming up soon. Imagine you see that. Would you be inspired to play for that team? This is the world we're living in. We need to call out everything that's wrong. Not the people, but what's wrong. And show a place that there is a better way to act that common decency still has a place in society that we will respect you even if you're wrong we will respect you but when i saw that story earlier on i say and i don't watch the football and i i don't care the giants could go 0 and 16 this year i know they're not because they've won i think two games one game three games I, that shows you that shows you how disinterested I am in football. Normally I'd be able to tell you, hey, Giants record, who we're playing next, who we just beat, who we just lost to, you know, some stats on Eli, whether he's playing good or I have no idea. That's how disinterested I am. But when I saw that story, I'm like, that just feeds the narrative of socialism being a superior ideology when it is nothing but it is a flawed, failed ideology that has never, ever worked. But we must understand one thing. If we are contributing to the problem or not. If we're just on either side, well, socialism is wonderful, or if we're on the side that capitalism always works and capitalism is perfect and it's brilliant and it's brilliant. We need to call out our own side when they do wrong. This was wrong. This was wrong. Regardless of what the Giants record is, you do not treat people this way. When you have free market principles... And I mean, when I say free market principles, I mean principles by Adam Smith, wealth of nations, and moral sentiments. You understand that capitalism isn't about numbers and about money. It is about people. And it is about empowering people. 
These are conversations we're going to have in the coming weeks. I thank you so much for tuning in today on Saturday or Sunday, whenever it is you listen to the show. As always, we're going to have the short clips up on Monday. Please invite a friend, share it with your family and friends. This I've got exciting things coming up for the next in the new year for this show. I'm breaking down what you've seen over the last couple of weeks is a snapshot of what we're going to be doing going more forward. We're going to give snapshots and overviews of parts of society, and then we're going to delve into each one individually to share the principles. And I do it not to to tell you how to think, but to encourage you to find out where you stand for yourself, even if you 100% disagree with me. I'm so excited for where this show is going, and hopefully it grows and shares with more and more people. Because I believe the message of free markets and freedom and individual liberty still means something to Americans, and we just need to share it more and more and more. Have a wonderful and blessed week, and as always, we finish the show the same way we do every week, by remembering the sentiments of Alexis de Tocqueville. America is great because Americans are good. America is great because Americans are good. The future of your nation does not rest in Donald Trump's hands. They do not rest in Congress's hands. They do not rest in the Supreme Court's hands. They rest in each and every one of your hands. What future do you want for tomorrow? And also by saluting the real heroes in society, your police, your firefighters, your emergency personnel, and your vets, the men and women of all backgrounds, of all ages, of all sexualities, of all races, standing up for liberty and freedom 24-7 so that the world can be a freer and better place. Until next week, America, next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a superb and blessed weekend. God bless. Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on demand. The Blaze Radio Network. 